And I'm going to just be reading an excerpt from uh, this wonderful uh, work of uh, a scholarship. It's called Baptism in the Early Church. It is the history, theology, liturgy in the first five centuries. And is written by the acclaimed uh, church historian uh, Everett Ferguson, which, uh, as stated previously, I have pinned a free link to the book at the top. It is a heavy read. It's about yeah, right at a thousand pages. <laughs> so uh, you may not get through it on your coffee break, but it is a uh, good proof as it relates to uh, just bringing substance to some of the beliefs that those who have baptism or who believe in it in a certain way. And I'm going to start again on page 142 and I'm uh, going to start under the excerpt of John and it's going to deal with some interesting facts as it relates to John to help us to understand the hermeneutical approach to why maybe a lot of uh, what we would say is oneness Pentecostals or even it's not even a oneness issue. There are just a lot of people who just believe in water baptism. Uh, He says under his heading, John. John has the greatest number of usages of the verb baptizo of any of the gospel, but no usage of the noun baptisma. And all of the occurrence of the verbs are to John's baptizing in the early parallel, baptizing by Jesus and his disciples. See chapter five. Some scholars, however, have seen several symbolic references to baptism in the fourth gospel frequent frequent mention of water, for example, the phrase living water. The wells up for eternal life that is central to Jesus's conversion conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob in John 4, 7 through 5. The healing water in the pool in Jerusalem, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The healing of the blind man at the pool of Siloam, chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The washing of the disciples feet by Jesus, chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. And the blood and the water that came from the side of the crucified Jesus, chapters 19, uh, verse 34. This interpretation was anticipated in the spiritual exegesis of the church fathers. And the church father that he uh, gives a footnote uh, is the gentleman Tertullian on baptism, which uh, if anyone will take a a look at Tertullian, uh, which I always think is very interesting, most people only like to quote him when it comes to the Godhead, at least from him being a proto-Trinitarian. But Tertullian was a baptismal essentialist, uh, which that never comes up in conversations. You ever you ever wonder about that? Uh, and he also mentions it, mentions it on Modesty, page 22. Now, what is of even more importance, water thus occurs in a variety of contexts in the fourth gospel often as a symbol of the spirit, but also of Jesus himself, and especially in passages where there is a call for decision to believe. The emphasis on water in John, uh, the greatest number of references in any New Testament book, second is Revelation, may have been a counter to the tendencies to to degenerate matter and substitute a spiritual understanding for the use of the material elements. And as many would know that Within the context of John's writing, it's believed that John was combating a proto form of Gnosticism that saw the material world as something that was evil and something that should be escaped, something that should be avoided at all costs. And so it is very probable that John, within his reality of trying to concrete uh, certain convictions, he makes it clear of the word which we've handled with our own hands. You, you'll notice these tendencies with John. He's very uh, 
clear and consistent on establishing that God will use temporal elements as mediums through which he will communicate his grace. We see that communication of grace in the atoned, toning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that through water baptism. Now, this is not to say these elements within themselves are uh, gracious uh, as an element, but simply only the instrument through which the Lord will use. And that was my commentary there. And so, the most important text in John for Christian baptism is St. John 3 and 3 and 5, where he says, except one is begotten from above or again, a nothing in the Greek, that person cannot see the kingdom of God, except one is begotten of water and spirit. Uh, that person cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives a reference of page 41, uh, some exegetical observations of this phrase. The usual translation is born probably because Nicodemus's misunderstanding in verse number four. But if we take the ambiguous and nothing as from above, its meaning in 331 and in 1911 in John and follow the emphasis on spirit in verses six through 12, especially verse eight, then John's statements concern primarily the divine beginning, not the human birth. I want to make sure everybody caught this. And this is this gentleman is not a one that's Pentecostal. He is a, a, a scholar. But if we take the ambiguous and nothing as from above, it's meaning in 331, if anyone was trying to write that down, 1911, and follow the emphasis on spirit in verses 6 through 12, especially 8, then Jesus' statements concern primarily the divine beginning, not the human birth. Although the latter would be implicit, even if not explicit. God gives new life through the spirit, St. John 6.63, in the water. And for that, he references a study on, on footnote 43 by uh, Gerald Dilling, uh, where he gives his uh, his wonderful exposition of some things concerning baptism in which the Holy Spirit works through. And also a commentary by Adolf von Harnick, uh, which also uh, gives commentary on water baptism in the early church. Uh, John 3 and 5, the most cited baptismal text in the second century and continue to be important afterwards. I just want everybody to be aware that this particular text as it related to baptism, and I am one for not trying to make a, a an argument strictly from history because, you know, I think it can because it can have problems. But one thing you will notice when reading all of the supposed quote unquote church fathers they disagreed on a number of issues. One issue they were not in disagreement about was the essentiality of baptism. That was something you will not find them arguing. They will be arguing about when to celebrate Easter. They will be arguing about whose hand is bigger than this one. They never argued about baptism being a part of the Lord's command. And you will never find this hyper-spiritual uh, interpretation of St. John 3 and 5 simply being the element of something uh, how can you say as, as as something that's not meaning what it was mean? It has historically always meant. Now, again, I'm not saying that because it's historical, it is correct. But I am saying this trend of saying, well, this is talking about a woman's birth. The first evidences of this, we don't see this until much, much later. So we have to accept the possibility that since the advent of such evidence is later, could it be that this understanding is also later? So 
Despite the overwhelming historical and majority contemporary consensus, there have been in, in uh, insistent efforts to remove John 3 and 5 from the broader dozier of baptismal texts. I will take one of the better attempts for examination. And he references uh, verse 44. The argument against the water in John 3 and 5 referring to baptism are as follows. Number one, baptism could have had no relevance to Nicodemus. Number two, the entire focus of John 3 is on the spirit. Number three, Jesus could not have expected Nicodemus to understand Christian baptism. Number four, there is no mystery of the work of the spirit in, in the work of the spirit. Uh, three and eight, it is tied to baptism. Uh, five, other references in John depreciate water baptism. And we're going to go through all of these references and we're going to see, do they really bear out? The alternative interpretation offered is that the water is figurative for spirit. When water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it refers to renewal or cleansing, especially in conjunction with spirit. Most important here is in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where the reference is to eschatological cleansing of which water is a symbol. John 3 and 5 is the parallel to 3 and 3. The preposition of governs both water and spirit. The birth has a water spirit source forming, forming a conceptual unity. There is only one birth, not two. The last point is certainly correct. Water and spirit are united in producing the new birth or birth from above. The question then is why are two elements mentioned if only one is meant? The other arguments do not succeed in dehydrating the new birth. Uh, the argument one, the baptism of John the Baptist was relevant to Nicodemus and the text of John 3 continues with a depiction, uh, depiction of John's baptism from uh, verses 22 and 23. A discussion between John's disciple and a Jew over purification, John 25 through 26, and the bapti on the activity of Jesus and his disciples uh, in uh, 3.22 and chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. The context certainly suggests that the water of St. John 3 and 5 is the same kind of water as in St. John 3 and 23. The focus of John 3 is indeed on the spirit. But does that eliminate the possibility that the spirit may work in and through water? A material meaning of healing in verses uh, in chapter three and 14 is compared to Jesus lifting up, being lifted up on the cross. That's an important port to manage. We have a material action taking place with spiritual ramifications. John was writing from the pre-resurrection standpoint and shapes the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus in turn in terms of Christian Jewish debate, let me turn over, of his own time. Note the plurals in 3 and 11. We know, we speak, we have seen, we testify, but you, plural, do not receive our testimony. The familiarity uh, assumed that Nicodemus had with John's baptism gives sufficient basis for Jesus directing his attention to a rebirth involving the spirit as well as water. Reading John 3 and 5 as a reference to baptism does not tie or limit the work of the spirit to water. It is seriously to be advanced that he may work through any means except water. Other readers of John's gospel who take 3 and 5 as a reference to water baptism have not seen the other verses cited as depreciating baptism. 
the fourth gospel does depreciate John's baptism in comparison to Jesus's baptism. The fourth gospel, um, the statements of John 1, 31 and 33 prepare for the declaration of three and five and support the baptismal interpretation of the latter. What made Jesus's baptism superior that it was accompanied by the activity of the spirit and confirmed the spirit, the very thing that John three and five says of it. And as you remember, Jesus even shows the superiority by saying there is one that comes who is mightier than I who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So this is the thing that made the baptism of, of Jesus even more superior, that it had two aspects, that it wasn't one just water, but it was also uh, involving the work, <clears throat> excuse me, of the spirit. Uh, the other major alternative to a baptismal reference in John three and five has even less to commend in than the equation of water and spirit. Some have suggested that the birth of water is a reference to physical birth either by the male semen or the water in the womb. But as noted above, this cannot be for the grammar allows only one begetting or birth, not two. The verbal parallels equate the birth of water in the spirit, three and five, with the birth from above. In verses three and three, in contrast with the natural birth that Nicodemus mentions in chapter three and four. The one beginning is derived from two elements, water and spirit. This is not to put the two elements on the same level of importance as the subsequent verses in John 3 shows the emphasis is on the activity of the spirit. The element that distinguished the new birth from the baptism of John with which Nicodemus could have been familiar. Only the spirit of God can give a new birth that is in part new spiritual life. But the occasion, according to the Gospel of John, is when one in faith receives the word, uh, John 1, 12 through uh, 13 and chapter 3 and 36, and submits to baptism. John 3 and 5 requires water, but not in the same way that it requires spirit. The water is the means or the occasion, and the spirit is the mediator of the new birth. The spirit is free to move as he will, St. John 3 and 8, but that freedom includes working in or through water. A moderate interpretive uh, approach presents water and spirit as identifiable but not inseparable components of the same experience. It is argued that in St. John 3, water is the means of believing in the realities manifested by Jesus. The baptism interpretation of 3 and 5 is possible, possible in view in St. John 3, 23 and 4, 23. But to see a reference to baptism alone is an unnecessary restriction in the meaning that reduces the imperative to believing. The water symbolizes a separation of those who believe in Jesus from those who do not. To this contention, it may be responded that John certainly gives priority to believing as he does to the role of the spirit. But this emphasis is consistent with speaking more confidently of a baptismal reference in St. John 3 and 5 an interpretation that contextual considerations provided by the preceding testimony of John the Baptist at the baptism of Jesus and the subsequent account of baptism activities support. What I like about this commentator is that he brings to the point, some would say, well, did he simply referring all the way back to Ezekiel, which could be a possibility. But within the context of John, when he says, are you not a teacher of Israel? He would have been aware of the ministry of John the Baptist 
which would have been more reason why he would have acknowledged the ministry of Jesus, because John was the one that was preparing the way. So from my understanding, it is of no surprise to me that Jesus would respond to John the Baptist by saying, well, aren't you a teacher of Israel? You know that I'm a teacher sent from God. How did he know that? John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So Jesus expected him to catch on to that just from the fact of what had been taking place in their context. A further observation is that the connection of the spirit in baptism with the forgiveness of sins is to be found in other witnesses. Uh, other writers may be of the connection of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness in John 20, 22 through 23. St. John 3 and 5 provides a combination of the ideas of baptism, sonship, new birth, and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we will find included in Paul's baptismal theology. Before turning to that, I note the use of the verb bapto in John 13, 26, a passage that, like Luke 16, 24 above, illustrates the way the New Testament uses the word for a literal dipping in a secular context. Jesus answered, it is the one from whom I dip, bapto, this piece of bread in the dish and give it to him. When he dipped it, the bypass, the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas. Variant readings in both instances give a form of baptism. The word used in Matthew and Mark's account as noted above. And because of the conversation that was going on, and I'm not... One to say a person doesn't have the right to see what they want to see, but I just thought maybe I could do a quick room and just from a scholarly excerpt that I think is quite helpful. Uh, and of course, with any scholar, any person is of any liberty to disagree with them because they're a scholar does not mean you have to agree. But for your consideration, for those who would be interested, I have included a free copy of this book by Bruce Ed, uh, Everett Ferguson. Uh, who is a well-renowned church historian and uh, I think very qualified to talk on the subject. And it's free. You can click on, use it at your uh, leisure, and I can give you the page number so you can review these and review the footnotes for, for, for yourself. Because one thing I'm not going to do, if I'm saying that this is what the scripture tells us to do in right response to God, I want to give you the evidence that has, well, some of the evidence rather, that has led me to the conclusion to see it the way that I do. And I want to of course, I can't make the decision for you, but I can give you the tools that I have so that you can be fully persuaded in your own mind. Respectfully, the page numbers for this scholarly reference will be found on 142 and 140. Well, excuse me, 142, 143, 144 through 145. So I think this is a good thing. If anybody just want to talk a little bit, we can. If not, I'll. Uh, in the room, I just thought it'd be helpful if I just maybe give another viewpoint, because one thing that I hate sometimes is that when people give their opinions or they teach on something, they act as if they are the only uh, viable uh, option that's there and anything else is stupid. Just because you disagree with a position doesn't mean that it's nothing to fall asleep on. There are a lot of positions I disagree with that I don't undermine or underestimate because uh It'd be the very thing you fall asleep on that end up making a fool of you at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> but if, you know, there not be anything else, I will uh, add this to my podcast. 238 Media is just as a quick teaching excerpt. And I may do some more excerpts on uh, these instances of baptism and 
I would definitely encourage you because he, he gives a very robust commentary, not only on the Christian understanding of baptism, but the pre-Christian understanding of baptism, how the word was understood in its secular context, how, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, how it was used in its worldly context, how it was used um, in, in, in various contexts that were not directly uh, associated with the scripture, but could be of a historical importance when you're trying to understand the interpretive context through which the New Testament writers may have been accustomed to viewing.